So we come now to God's word. And in a few moments, Aidan is going to be preaching from this passage in Isaiah, where the prophet speaks of the ways in which God seeks to unite a people, not only for himself, but a unite a people in repentance for those things which they have committed, that have separated them from God and have enabled them to feel a sense of isolation from the love of God. I'm reading then from Isaiah 64, uh, verses 1 to 11. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you, as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continued in sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and made us waste away because of our sins. Yet, O oh Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, O oh Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look upon us, we pray, for we are all your people. Your sacred cities have become a desert. Even Zion is a desert. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and glorious temple, where our ancestors praised you, has been burnt with fire, and all that we treasured lies in ruins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Shall we pray together? Father God, thank you for this opportunity to gather together, as scattered as we may be in our various homes. Lord, I pray that as we think on and reflect on your word, as we start this new church year, this start this year of this season of Advent, 
Lord, I pray that we would be focused on you. We would be refocused on you. We rededicate ourselves to you. And as I speak, Lord, I just pray that you would uh, speak to us wherever we find ourselves, both literally and spiritually, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, so good morning. Good morning again. Uh, let me add my welcome to you this morning. Uh, as Joe said, my name is Aidan and I'm the curate here at Christchurch. As Joe also said, this is the first Sunday of Advent. We have our first Advent candle lit. And I don't know about you, but I think this year the build up to Christmas has been a bit delayed, perhaps. Uh, but this week, it seems that since the government announced the Christmas lights and trees are already up. Michael Bublé and Mariah Carey have kind of finished their 11-month self-isolation uh, from the public eye, and they, they're once again, they're filling our radio airwaves with their songs of Christmas songs and all that kind of, you know the ones I mean. And in the eyes of the world, that is what Advent is about. Advent is a countdown to Xmas. Advent calendars are, of course, are very popular. And I, as a kid, I remember you getting these advent calendars and opening a door to the ch every every day, and a chocolate window would, have, and I'd have the chocolate, and I'd be counting down until the 25th of December arrived, and I'd get even more presents, and it was amazing. And that is great. That is joyful. But actually, that is not all about what that is not all what Advent is about. Advent is a season in and of itself. In the church. So what is Advent? Advent is what well, the word means beginning or coming and the season of Advent like lots of things it's, it's kind of evolved around those themes over the last 2,000 years. Of course to some extent it is a countdown to Christmas where we celebrate God, the coming Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us. We have our four Advent candles where we light one each on the four Sundays and then on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, the, the final candle in the middle is lit for the Christmas season. And the, these candles have different meanings in different churches. You know, some, meaning, some places they will, they will use the candles to mean, uh, firstly, the patriarchs, where we celebrate the patriarchs and the, the, the fathers of the Old Testament. Then we have the prophets, kind of moving to the rest of the Old Testament. Then we have John the Baptist and Mary being the fourth week before Jesus is celebrated on Christmas Eve. Alternatively, in some other churches, you might have the candles to represent hope, peace, joy, and love that are all brought out and, and celebrated perfectly in Christ. But the, the tradition of the Advent candle is less than 200 years old, and the church has been celebrating Advent for a lot longer the church has been focusing uh, and using Advent as a time to focus on simplicity, with the church repairing and rededicating itself, repenting in light of the coming King. And that's not just the coming King at Christmas, where we celebrate the birth of Jesus, but also a look into the future and the, the second coming of Christ as he returns now, for Advent at church, at Christ Church, we're following the lectionary readings, and we're using the appointed readings that the Church of England gives for each week. And the readings for today really help us uh, kind of dig into these themes of Advent. The New Testament reading, which we didn't have, is from Mark, 
And that reminds us that Jesus will return one day. And it's all about the second coming. It's all in Mark 13, if you want to read that later. And this Advent, we can be encouraged that the struggles and pains of this life are temporary. That Jesus will one day return to redeem all of creation. There will be a new heaven and a new earth where there is no pain and no suffering. But we don't know when that will be, and and the passage in Mark 13 tells us that we need to be on guard and ready for that moment. But then we have our Isaiah passage, our second passage, our our Old Testament reading. And this is where, this I don't know about you, but when I first read it, I found it very confusing, very depressing (laughs) and muddling. And and perhaps through it, uh, I, I think we should, this is the one we should focus on to dig in and deeper and try and understand what's going on here. Because this passage really focuses on, on the Advent themes of rededication and repentance. So perhaps you might want to have that open in front of you. Isaiah chapter 64, uh, because I'm going to refer to it quite a bit as we go. So... Isaiah 64. And the first thing to say is that Isaiah, it comes after Isaiah 63. And that's, that might sound obvious, that might sound silly to say, but in fact, really, Isaiah 63 verse 7 to 64 verse 11 is all one psalm. It's all one kind of writing, one bit of poetry by Isaiah. It's one collection, and we need to, in order for us to understand our passage for today, we need to understand it in the context of the whole. And it starts with praise. 63 verses 7 to 9, they are words of praise. It says, I will tell of the kindness of the Lord, the deeds for which he is to be praised. And it goes on to talk about how God declared the people of Israel to be his people how he looked after them in their distress. So this passage starts with praise, declaring the goodness of God and how he'd looked after the people of Israel. And then it moves to lament. Isaiah, the writer, is lamenting at how Israel had wandered from God and they were worshipping other gods. And then lamenting how, because of this, God seemingly would, would, is going to go and remove his blessing from Israel. He's going to use other uh, forces to judge them, other countries, other empires to judge them. And you have the exile uh, that lasted for 800 years. So we have praise followed by lament. And then we get to our selection of the passage today that Joe read to us, which is all about the Advent theme of repentance. Isaiah 64 is all about repentance. So what is repentance? Well, it's a kind of it's an English word, but we, we translate a Hebrew word, which is teshuva, from the word shuv, which means turning, turning towards God, turning away from sin towards God. It's an it's a hopeful act. You know, it's it's a turning away from the things that are bad and turning towards the goodness of God. There is hope in repentance. And I think this passage helps us learn two things about repentance. Firstly, is that it isn't all about being guilty. Because acknowledging guilt is at best only the first part of repentance. I wonder, Julian, yeah, there we go. So acknowledging guilt, it's, repentance isn't all about guilt. It's, you know, the if we're just guilty, we're not repentant. 
Yes, there are passages in this, in this chapter that seem very guilt-heavy, and they acknowledge the seriousness, seriousness, that's a hard word to say, seriousness, there we go, of sin, <laughs> like in verse 6. So the seriousness of sin is acknowledged. It says, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. You know, that is something that the Apostle Paul quoted in the New Testament, in Romans. And those filthy rags that it talked about, they can literally be translated as menstrual towels. The point is that sin is a massive problem, and a problem that infects us all. But the passage doesn't stop at guilt. It doesn't, the repentance doesn't stop at guilt. It actually acknowledges hope and that the only solution to the problem of sin is God. Verses 8 and 9 say this, Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. So it acknowledges this passage helps us realize that repentance isn't just about guilt. But the second thing it helps us acknowledge is that it's not just an individual action. It's not just a personal thing. Repentance isn't just a personal thing. You know, Isaiah was writing this, that, and actually this isn't about Isaiah repenting. Actually, he was pretty faithful to God in a, in a sea of people who weren't. It's not about an individual's repentance. It's not even about the king of Israel's repentance. But it's about the repentance of the whole people. This passage is written in the plural tense. Verse 2 talks about the nations. Verse 3 says, you did awesome things that we did not expect. Verse 5, you come to the help of those who do right. But when we continue to sin, do you see what I'm saying? This is a corporate action. When we say our confession that we did at the beginning of the service, you'll notice, you know, when we confess our sins, we confess our sins. Confession and repentance is not something you just do on your own. You do with the whole body of Christ. And this psalm gives the example of a people, a nation, the human race, falling at the feet of God in repentance. And I want to suggest this this morning. That perhaps now, more than ever, we need to learn and relearn the meaning of and the richness of repentance in a corporate sense. We need to learn the richness of corporate repentance. Now, there's so much in the Bible to suggest that repentance is more than just a personal thing. You know, the Psalms are full of corporate repentance. Also in Nehemiah chapter 9 and 10, towards the end of the exile, when the, the, the Israel, Israel as a nation was still living under the rulership of other nations, but they had restored Jerusalem. They had rebuilt the walls. What do they do? They, they get together as a people in corporate repentance. They rededicate themselves. And then in the New Testament, there's lots of examples, again, of corporate repentance. For instance, have you ever noticed that Jesus at his baptism, is baptized by John in what is called a baptism of repentance. Now that is confusing to us if we think that repentance is just about an individual sinner. Now how can Jesus, the one who is without sin, how can he repent of sin? It just doesn't make sense. 
But if we think collectively and corporately about repentance, thinking it's about more than just one individual, well, it can make sense. You know, just as Isaiah brought to God the sins of the people of Israel, Jesus brings to God the sins of the whole world. He bears it on his shoulders and bears it to the cross. To some extent, all of Jesus' ministry fits under this understanding of repentance. As he called those around him to follow him, he was calling people to rededicate themselves, turn from their sin and know forgiveness. As, and as his church, we are called to do the same. As a church, sometimes we are called to bring to God the sins of all people, those in the church, those outside the church and beyond the church, because he is the solution to the problems in this world. He is the solution to all the sins that all the people in this world face. Now, this is quite confusing. <laughs> how do we bear the sins of the world in repentance? How do we do all this? And I recognize this. And there's a lady called Jennifer McBride who's written a book called Church as a Public Witness. And she talks about repentance a lot. And I think it's a phenomenal book. It's quite confusing, but, uh, but it's phenomenal. And the way she makes it more understandable is she gives us some concrete examples. And she talks about a church in America. Uh, well, a Christian community. I wouldn't necessarily call it as, as a church as such because they're a bit more all over the place in that sense. But they're a community that are committed to, to the Christian responsibility to care for creation. As a community, they are trying to live sustainably and to, to kind of live a repentant lifestyle when it comes to creation. The leader of this community said this. She said, at the heart of the ecological crisis is a spiritual crisis. See, this, this community, they believe that Christians and non-Christians alike have falsely understood ourselves as masters over creation, not God. We've thought of ourselves as masters of creation, not just some creatures that live in it alongside nature. Therefore, this community are trying to live, with a, live out a corporate repentance, corporately repenting of all human sin against creation, bearing the sins of the world to God, and then asking for God to truly inspire them to care for his creation, a bit like he does. So as this second lockdown comes to an end, as our exile from our buildings this time comes to an end, there's an opportunity for us to take stock. You know, we, as we begin Advent, we have this opportunity to rededicate ourselves, to refocus on Christ. How is God calling us as a corporate body to repentance? How are we, this Advent, called to rededicate ourselves? What does that look like for you and for me and for us? How might we bear the sins of others to God? How might we, our outreach be affected if we do it through a, an actions of corporate repentance? There's some big questions here, and I'm finishing. I promise I'm not going to go on and answer them. But, but I think it's really important that we ask these questions. It's really important that, you know, we want to ask these questions. Any home group leaders who want to kind of follow this discussion on, by all means, get in touch and we can work out some questions together. But with the promising signs of a vaccine meaning that we could come to back to some level of normality by, by hopefully the summer at latest. We need to be asking how God is calling us 
to live differently. How God is calling us to be church differently. How is God calling us as a denomination, the Church of England, to a ministry of repentance? You know, the church nationally is in decline. The Church of England is in decline. And, you know, we at Christchurch might pat ourselves on the back and think, you know, you know, we might rejoice in the fact that we're a relatively thriving church. But down the road and all around us, our brothers and sisters in Christ are really struggling. How might our repentance kind of impact how we live differently and think of other churches? My prayer is this, that the church that emerges from this time of exile will be one that is repentant. A church that acknowledges God's strength and not our own strength. God's goodness and not our own goodness. A church that is truly honest about our own shortcomings and crucially a church that is willing and able to share Jesus as the solution to these shortcomings with the world around us. But that's both on our individual front lines but also as a repentant community. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for how good you are. Thank you for your goodness, your righteousness. Thank you that you have saved each of us as we turn to you in Jesus. As we put our faith in you, we can know salvation. Lord, thank you for our church, for all the many wonderful things that go on here and throughout uh, Bristol and beyond through the work of this church. But Lord, as we come to this new year, this new advent, Lord, we pray that you would challenge us and change us to be the community you want us to be. Help us to come to you in repentance as a community, not trusting in our own righteousness, but trusting in yours. Shape us, Lord. Change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.